we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia. My guest today is Sean Dooley. Sean is a TV comedy writer as well as a published author, and his great passion in life is for birds. He's also a self-described extreme twitcher who once took a whole year off to travel the country counting birds in order to break the national record. He wrote about it most entertainingly in his book, The Big Twitch. These days, Sean is the public affairs manager at BirdLife Australia. and as the annual springtime Great Aussie Backyard Bird Count approaches, we're catching up with Sean on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Sean. Uh, thank you, Chrissy. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. It's good to see you and meet you at last because we've... Um, obviously cross paths on a number of occasions over the years with Australian Geographic over this very much this very shared passion between uh, our readers and the members of BirdLife um, Australia and of course BirdLife International beyond that um, yes. and I, I'm we, we're both uh, conducting this conversation from our various lockdowns today <laughs> I'm in lockdown in Sydney and you're locked down in Melbourne and um, what you probably can't hear which you might, you might hear it now and again, is that I have in the background got that incessant call of the coel ringing in. Oh, right. So it, it arrived as it always does last week. You'd almost set your watch by it. And it's now the soundtrack to my working day and it will be for the, <laughs> the rest of the month, and maybe the month after that. Um, so what I'd say is about that is, and I remember this a year ago as well, um, if there's been any upside at all to COVID and it's hard to find any, uh, it might be that we've all been spending a lot more time um, at home uh, and getting to know those feathery residents of our own backyards probably more than we ever had done before. We may have only given them a passing glance before, but they actually are something we've been able to observe week in, week out, month in, month out. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've learned a lot more about our native wildlife, even if it's, you know, if we don't have a garden, but we go walking, walking's the only thing we've been able to do. So what do you think? Uh, do you think over the, the past 18 months, people, there's been an upsurge in interest in bird life? Have you got any kind of evidence of that? Oh, yes, undoubtedly, Chrissy. We, um, it's interesting you talk about the coel because they were unknown in Victoria uh, until essentially the last 15 years or so. And I was just talking uh, the uh, last week to a, a work colleague at BirdLife who's also in lockdown and only about five kilometres from my place. And they said they just heard a coel. And it's part of the trend for the, the eastern coels come into Victoria far more often now. And there's probably at least 50 or 60 records every spring. So we're getting more and more like the east coast every day. And But just in answer to your first question um we've undoubtedly seen a much greater interest in um in birds generally 
I remember within a week of the first lockdown, remember that, those heady times back in March. <laughs> Long time ago now. We were, yes, in, in back in March 2020, it, uh, within about a week we had a lot of uh, people contacting us at BirdLife Australia, but also I was getting a lot of media calls to comment on people asking what the heck is going on with our birds. People were convinced that COVID was affecting bird life. And every instance that I was able to grill the people reporting this, what it was, was they were just, it wasn't the birds had changed, it was we had changed. Our world was suddenly quiet. We were at home. We weren't traveling. We weren't in the car. We, there was less traffic noise and they were hearing and noticing birds essentially for the first time. And every bizarre behaviour they were describing, every gregarious congregation turned out to be exactly what Australian birds do and have been doing right outside our backyard windows. It's just we had never taken the time or had the quiet to notice. And that was the start of something really quite big. And certainly over the course of the pandemic in various lockdowns, I think birds have become incredibly important in people's daily lives. And I think as we you know, this time, downtime that we've had has has enforced us to to sort of think about what's important. And one of the things that I think we've generally seen an upsurge in is this wishing to connect with nature and this enjoyment of nature. And it's best express, expressed through our birds. They're the most manifest um, thing that you see of nature every day. You hear them. They're the soundtrack to our lives. It's a much clearer soundtrack these days with less traffic noises. But they're also visually, that they're the bit of nature that's in your face. I suppose plants are as well, but um, these are the creatures that are in your face. And, and certainly at BirdLife Australia, through our Urban Birds program and we, we ran our engagement program, we ran a big um, birding at home campaign to try and keep people entertained, stop them from going mad. And so much interest coming our way in, in what was going on with birds, people wanting to report what they were seeing. And just anecdotally as well, I know a lot of people in my circle of friends who kind of, you know, for, for most of my life have, have had a bit of a smirk out the side of their face about my bird watching addiction. Uh, they're suddenly like they saying, I get it now. I get it. We're going walking in the park and, you know, I've got a tawny frog mouth nest that I've been watching or I've, I've really got into bird photography and it's happening across the board. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic thing because I guess, um, you know, it is that there are so many benefits to just being a little bit, taking it a bit easier, getting out of the car. I mean, we are always advocating for leave the car behind, you know, get out on foot. And, you know, also when you are going walking in the bush, you know, don't you don't have to carry on a really loud conversation. It's not great for bird watching if you're all sort of chattering. There's nothing wrong with having a good laugh, but quiet walking in the bush is not just good for the soul, but it's good for spotting all sorts of animals and birds and snakes and whatever. So uh, I guess I think that kind of leads us to really um, whether or not um, you saw an increase in participation in the backyard bird count mm. because um, this is something that's been going on. Well, in, in fact, bird counts and bird surveys have been going on for 
over 100 years in Australia through various ornithological organisations. It's, it's what the actual activity of bird organisations is. But the great thing about the, the Backyard Birds Count is there's an app. You know, you do it, you do it on your phone now. You've, you've made such great use of technology. So did you see an uplift last year in the bird count? And what are your um, aspirations for this year's one, you know, two years mm. on? And, you know, we, we're back in lockdown again. I mean, are you expecting a bumper year? Well, we're certainly hoping that we will. And and definitely last year, we did see a big upswing in participation in the Aussie Backyard Bird Count. About 20% increase in participants overall, which was great. Uh, we, I think we had 108,000 individual participants, which was just fantastic, making it, if not the biggest citizen science project in Australia, then certainly right up there. And but fascinatingly, the biggest surge in participation was from people in Victoria, particularly Melbourne. I think we increased our Victorian um, surveyors, uh, our Victorian counters increased by about 30%. And that, that was a fantastic result. It means people really engaged. And it's a fantastic result for the people because the backyard bird count's a fun thing to do and it's a great way to get into not just nature in your neighbourhood, but also get into that idea that you can contribute to the, the the vast body of knowledge that we need to know about our birds. But yeah, also it meant that that contribution is really helping us to get a much more accurate snapshot each year of what our most common birds are doing, which is part of the reason for firing up the Aussie Backyard Bird Count is one of the biggest knowledge gaps we have in Australian ornithology is what our common birds do. When, when you think of it, what BirdLife Australia focuses on generally is we, we, our main mission is sort of stopping bird extinctions. So we're always working out when we have projects going, it's often uh, on endangered species. But we know that, you know, endangered species, by their definition, there's not many of them and they're hard to see. And that's not what gets people into bird watching, not what gets them into a love of birds, is that connection of the birds you get in your backyard. Those, those you might see them on, see a bird on your holiday or something, and that that sparks your interest. But getting people to tell us what they're seeing in their backyard is is actually serving us really well in confirming stuff that we already suspected was happening with common bird populations, but we're it's revealing a whole new set of information that we would otherwise have had no idea or no access to. And I think, um, uh, I mean, I think, you know, I think we might all know that I think last year was the rainbow lorikeet was the most commonly uh, seen bird that you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yes. But it yes. also had some alarming trends that were revealed in them. So uh, particularly around small, smaller birds, smaller birds, which are those bird species and why you think um, uh, they're disappearing from the urban backyards. Last year was our seventh Aussie backyard bird count and that we felt that was a, a long enough period of time to be able to really start looking at the data and seeing if we can start picking up any long-term trends. And the two things that immediately stood out was the increase of the larger, more aggressive, uh, successful city birds like the rainbow lorikeet and the noisy minor, which were birds number one and two in every year we did the count. However, not only are they still number one and two, and the, the rainbow lorikeet, we see twice as many reported as any other species, 
uh, but also their reporting rates in most cities and urban areas was going up as well. So they're, they're already common, but they, they're increasing in number as, as well. So that was on the one hand, uh, something really interesting, but what really grabbed our attention and, and gave us a great cause for concern was that a lot of what we would have regarded as previously as successful urban birds, small urban birds, those small bush birds that managed to have for 150 years of urbanization in most places, they've eked out and thrived in, in suburban and peri-urban sort of areas. They're, they're, they've been common garden birds. And those birds are starting, even in the last seven years, we're noticing significant declines in the number of times that people are reporting them. And the birds that we really picked this up were the small bush birds that need a lot of undergrowth and dense cover. And so they were birds like the superb fairy wren in Eastern Australia and its equivalent, the splendid fairy wren in Perth. And also a really hardy bird called the silver eye, gorgeous little bird, very common in rural areas and used to be very common in urban areas. And that has declined as well. And both of those birds in some cities have dropped in terms of reporting rates by, uh, by, by about 50% over the seven years. That's of pretty significant. Yeah. Yes, and I, yes, I think you're giving, the, you've already sort of given the clue really there, haven't you, as to why that might be when you mm. say the kind of terrain that they prefer. So tell us what, what your thoughts are on, on, on why, that, why they're disappearing. Yes, I think it's what people don't realise about urban areas, about cities and towns and, and even sort of farming areas, agricultural areas, as these, these become habitat. What we do in the landscape actually creates a habitat. It might not be the ideal habitat for, for animals and birds and plants that lived there before, but when you alter the landscape, you're essentially creating a habitat. And if we put all of the urban area of Australia into one spot, it would be the size of Kakadu National Park. So that's a large chunk of Australia that is under a specific type of habitat. And the birds are like, I see them as an expression of that habitat. And so the fact that we have those common birds like the rainbow lorikeet and noisy miner reflects what we've done in that landscape, which since sort of the 1960s and 70s, when we've shifted our parks and gardens and street trees away from that English traditional cottage garden with the, with the manicured lawns. And we've got much more into native plants and trees. Those birds are generally the nectar feeders like the rainbow lorikeets and the noisy mm. miner. So that's why they've gone up. We've created ideal habitat. But at the same time, in and this is a, a worrying trend recently, an urbanisation trend where we are doing two things in our cities and on the edges of our urban areas. We're, we're still expanding in, into the peri-urban, the rural areas. So we're still creating housing estates on the edges of our city. And often, even if it's in farmland, um, you're still losing the rough ground, the dense shrubbery, um, that sort of stuff. The creek lines, even along old rail, railway lines can actually be really good wildlife refuges for birds like superb fairy wrens. So we're losing that habitat and that connectivity where the birds can move through some dense wooded country and, and move to different areas. But also within our inner urban areas, we're doing, you know, I think what the, the geographers call urban infill, where 
We're getting what, you know, greenfield sites or brownfield sites, old industrial estates, old infrastructure things that might have been a bit overgrown and a bit weedy, but actually harboured a lot of uh, diversity. And we're, we're building on that and we're building, the trend is for larger houses or, or a lot of uh, medium and high density housing. And that leaves really very little room for, for gardens that, that can attract birds. And you see bigger houses on suburban blocks building right to the boundary, virtually no garden. And that, that traditional tangled sort of Aussie garden that we had that was so, so good at harbouring the, the sort of small woodland birds like, you know, like eastern yellow robins or um, scrub wrens, brown thornbills, grey fantails, all those beautiful little bush birds, uh, they're, they're getting cut off from other areas and they're losing their habitat where they are. And so we're seeing this decline. Is there, you know, general recognition of that? And, and certainly when it comes to, say, planning and, and planning permission and, and architects and, and the way that houses are designed, you know, is there a way of feeding into that process to say that, you know, we're, yes, you might have a great big house that you then have to fill with loads of furniture mm. and keep clean, which I, I can't really see why anyone would want the biggest house uh, that you could possibly build because that's just like, it's a whole lot of work myself. But, um, yes. you know, is, is there is there a sort of a mechanism really to, to, to feed, given the huge popularity that you're seeing with mm. even the bird count and with the, 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 you know, the lockdowns and the fact that we're all, you know, appreciating these birds perhaps more than ever before. Do you think that there is potential for that to feed back into the decision making, even if it's at the level of the the, the household or the person that's bought mm. the block of land or that's knocking down the old fibre and putting the house? What, what do you think about that? What do you think opportunities exist there? Well, I think at at present we are just at the beginning of that uh, awareness. Um, I think even in even in fields where where there is an awareness of trying to green the cities, um, you know, you, you've heard in the last couple of years a lot of talk about green cities and and climate mm. change and um, you know how tree cover just on, in a microclimate level, it, you know, really helps reduce ambient temperature on the street and around houses. All of that stuff is is quite a revolution in urban planning and thinking. However, it's still it's still not at a level that's going to really help all that much biodiversity because we're talking about planting trees. We're talking about an overstory, but we haven't even got our minds down below the, the level of the canopy, which is where a number, like a, a large percentage of our bush birds rely on that, that those understory uh, types of plants. And we still have a lot of cultural baggage about untidiness having neat manicured gardens also there's there's a there's a safety aspects we have sort of in the back of our brains these ideas that rough ground is dangerous like you know there could be predators both you know feral foxes and cats but literal predators uh, in terms of unsavory characters hiding out in bushes uh, so it becomes you know feeds into public safety debates and and then you've got the the aspect and you're seeing this in rural areas and areas on the urban fringe where we've had the horrific fires and rather than looking at a bigger picture people it's much easier to focus on on smaller things well if we got rid of the undergrowth then we wouldn't have these fires which is not necessarily correct thinking in the first place um 
And so, so we have these things about people saying, let's put goats in there. Let's just do lots of burning. Let's clear. And so you're losing all this connectivity and this richness of habitat. And we're, we're only starting to wrap our heads around what we need to do to save our birds. So hopefully the work we're doing through our urban birds program at BirdLife Australia and, and these great events like the Aussie Backyard Bird Counter are at least getting people who love birds to start thinking about it and thinking about what they can do to make a bird-friendly garden. And it's it's a very, we're at the bottom of a very, very steep learning. Yeah. Hill. And I know that um, you've got a particular um, uh, focus this year on getting young people involved, mm. people under, you know, it's of school age and, and you know, uh, in their teens or even younger. And um, so what what kind of strategies have you got to kind of galvanize that's a really powerful group they're very that generation is going to come through they're going to be able to articulate what, what they want and what they think about these decisions that were made mm. by their parents and their grandparents and um h- how are you talking to them what are the what are the ways in which you're, you're contacting them and, and getting them involved yeah i think i think in the past we've actually with the aussie bird count we've done pretty well engaging schools and we've managed to get some of the our materials into curriculum and things like that in some states. But the difficulty, especially this year, if if a lot of areas are still in lockdown when when the bird count happens, is last year we had 1,600 schools participate across the country. Um, So a lot of the students that were engaged, they they were doing their backyard bird count at the school itself. This year we realised those students may not be physically at the school. So we're really trying them to, to get out into their own backyards or down to the local park to, to do their surveys. So one of the things that we've sort of certainly picked up, even though we had such a great um, participation from schools, when we looked at the demographics of who does the Aussie bird count, only about 7% of the counters are under 18. There might be more that are doing it with parents and particularly grandparents we've we've had a lot of anecdotal um, reports of people saying they've been doing these counts with their grandchildren it's a great activity to bond with the grandkids so maybe we haven't picked up all the all the young people who are doing it but we certainly are are trying to make it as kind of user-friendly as possible and that's one of the great things about the, the bird count itself is it's getting kids outdoors and connecting with nature but doing it through technology. So it's got that familiar thing. We're getting them off a screen by telling them to go out with a screen. Yeah. The easiest way to count is you download the app and then you enter the data as you as you see the birds in the app and we get it in real time at BirdLife. So hopefully that sort of almost gamification of, of going out and counting birds is, is a bit more appealing. And I certainly know with my kids, I've got... Um, well, two, two children, and when we started the backyard bird count, they were both in primary school. And what appealed to them about doing the bird count is not so much the birds because they roll their eyes a bit when their dad goes on about birds, but they enjoyed doing the, the bird count because they they got to hold the phone and they got to, well, I identified the birds and pointed them out. They were far more interested in putting the finding the bird on the uh, on the list of uh, on the app and then entering the numbers. So hopefully that will be a, a conducive way to to get Pete to get kids in, um, because we know also from from our membership and our supporters and and generally the people who did the backyard bird camp, 
it's mainly an older generation. And when you talk to those people sort of from, you know, fifties onwards, most of them, their, their interest in birds was sparked when they were kids, when they were able to roam in their neighborhoods or, you know, they had, maybe they grew up in the country or had cousins in the country and being out in nature, they loved it, but then life got, got in the way. And it's only once their kids have grown and they're looking to do more things in their fifties and sixties and onwards, that they come back to it. And what really concerns me is that if we're not reaching this current generation of kids who have a really heightened sense of environmental awareness, uh, but their circumstances mean they're not actually experiencing it, not, enjoy, not experiencing the thrill and the joys that we had when we were young, uh, we're going to miss out an entire generation in 30 years or so they won't be coming back to this and we will need them in 30 years because yeah. our problems aren't going to go away. We'll need people passionate and creative who can who can try and tackle these problems. Yeah, and look, and, and Sean, if there's people that are listening that are in neither of those age groups and maybe somewhere in the middle who <laughs> really have never thought about being, a, maybe they did think it was a bit of a nerdy thing, but I think, you know, it, yes. you know how do we make birdwatching cool? That's what I'd be saying. <laughs> Sean, there must be a way. And uh, you're yes. a pretty good exponent of cool. And I'll tell you what for why, because uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about extreme bird watching um, or extreme twitching. Now, we had a really interesting little debate that came up in the magazine where uh, we ran a picture of a, a ladies' bird watching group from the early 1900s that had all gone to Kangaroo Island and they were camped out oh, yeah. counting birds or wearing these incredible Victorian outfits. It was just pretty <laughs> funny to think that they were sort of running through the bush wearing these hoop skirts. But um, we got quite a lot of feedback for that um, photo, which is why we know we have so many you know bird fans that, that read the magazine. Uh, but we sort of interchanged the two phrases, the, the, the two words, twitchers and bird watchers. And we got a letter from someone saying these two things are absolutely not the same thing at all. And it was <laughs> along the lines of something like a, a bird watcher is someone that goes out and looks at birds and, and sits there and, and takes copious notes and writes them up and observes behavior. Whereas a twitcher is someone with a list who's running around trying to just tick the birds off. What do you say to that uh, debate between those two terms? Well, I I understand that perspective and it's far more heightened in Britain where calling someone a, a twitcher is almost a pejorative term. In Australia, it's far more interchangeable basically because we don't have that many twitchers. There's not a huge cohort. A rare bird turns up in Australia, say, like the I think the most seen vagrant species ever was the tufted duck that turned up at Werribee Sewage Farm near Melbourne at the Western Treatment Plant. And certainly, uh, well, I think the first day about 500 people went to see it, which is unprecedented in Australian terms. Whereas that, that would be your average slightly rare bird in Britain would attract that many people. And you get a lot of bad behaviour, I think, at, at those things. But I think in Australia, we do use it more interchangeably. And I think people who are, who are worried about being branded a twitcher are being a little precious because from what I understand and from my experience of being a, a bird watcher since I was 10 is that most of the, most of the extreme birders, the, 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 the twitchers with the biggest lists, which means they've traveled to every rare bird that's turned up, be it in broom or, uh, you know, or Tasmania and, and have done specific trips to places like Christmas Island or Macquarie Island to get new birds for their Australian list. 
out of if you looked at the top 100 people with the top 100 lists you will see some of Australia's most prominent conservation ecologists there um, you will see people who have dedicate, dedicated their life to financially and 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 their careers and their spare time to to the study of birds um, to to doing things like banding shorebirds migratory shorebirds and and working on where they go and how we can save them so to be honest, I find it a bit ridiculous that people get worried about it. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. I say you're, what you're telling is is that the, the twitches, you know, they've done their, their they've paid their dues. They've yeah, done I, I those so. hard yards, and they're they're entitled to go running around with their bird list. But I guess in some ways, when I I I understand that, you know that search for the the bird, the next bird on the list, and you know mm. and the, the extreme witches that will fly around the world to do that so it, and I in fact I spent a little bit of time with one of those people up in I went up to far north Queensland to do a bird story to see how many birds I could see in three days I did it for the magazine I saw oh, 75 so I thought I was pretty good <laughs> until I met somebody who had about 675 on her list I realized that there was I was you know never really going to make it but um I enjoyed it anyway um so yeah so there are some you know people that helicopter into some of the more remote parts of Australia is that something that you yourself have done this is where we're, I'm just trying to build up this cool the cool bird what oh, yes do. yeah true yeah so tell us about helicoptering into somewhere to go and look for birds what sort of people get to do that yeah well very few that I know of in fact it's the <laughs> researchers that get the, to use the helicopters I have never helicoptered anywhere I, I in my big twitch I was contemplating doing that because I got up to the Kimberley and I left my run too late. And there's a, a, a fantastic bird I still haven't seen called the black grass wren. And the one place to see it is in the Mitchell River Falls. It's the one accessible place. Uh, and that's about 300 kilometres off the Gibb River Road. And by the time I got there, they closed it because of the wet season. Uh, so I couldn't drive in there. And then I, I, I went and looked in another secondary spot where they hadn't been seen for a long time and I'd, I'd spent a couple of hellish days tramping around looking for them with no success. So I got into Kununurra a couple of days later and seriously looked about the, the, the tourist helicopters to Mitchell River Falls had stopped, but there was, you could hire a light plane and I was contemplating hiring the plane, getting it to drop me at the nearest airstrip, which I think was 19 kilometres from the top of the falls and then hiking in and staying overnight and looking for these birds. As it, it was going to cost a couple of thousand just to rent the, the plane. And it was something like, you know, 41 degrees and about 90% humidity. So I may well have died <laughs> doing it. So <laughs> in the end, I didn't go and do that. But I have done some quite ridiculous things. The seeing breaking, the record-breaking bird for my big twitch was uh, a bird called a lesser noddy, which breeds on the Abrolhos Islands off Geraldton in Western Australia. And the only way I could get out there, aside from going on a fishing charter, which would take a week, which I didn't have the time, was I had to, I did hire a light plane and the pilot flew me out and we flew over and around one of the breeding islands for this bird, which is only found on the Abrolhos and also on the Seychelles on the other side of the Indian Ocean. And I realised that we couldn't just fly and strafe the island, so to speak, because this was this endangered bird, breed its breeding grounds. So we had to fly at a suitable height so it wasn't disturbing the, the lesser noddies from nesting. 
which made it really difficult to actually see them as we're flying around. So in the end, I was essentially hanging out of the plane with one arm around the strut on the wing and the other arm with my binoculars to get a decent view of the lesser noddy. So in some ways, that's the most extreme that I've gone to, apart from dropping everything and driving for 14 hours to see a, a grey-headed lapwing in northern New South Wales or a rosy starling in, in Broome, jumping on the first plane to Broome to see that. Well, look, I mean, that all sounds like it's sort of wonderfully thrilling. So, yes, bird, I guess we're getting there, aren't we? Bird watching can be an absolute thrill. Mm. Um, and I guess what we really want to do is, is encourage people to start bird watching, whatever age they are. Um, it's a hobby worth um, taking up. It, you know, it, it doesn't really cost very much apart from a, a, perhaps a good pair of binoculars. And um, I, I think, you know, we hope that the great Aussie Backyard Bird Camp will help to do that. And if would you like to tell us a little bit more about when it's happening and um, how people can get involved? Yes, uh, the, this year the bird count is on during Bird Week, which is usually towards the end of October. And it's uh, the 18th to the 25th of October. And the easy, easiest way to get involved is to, you simply download the Aussie Bird Count app from wherever you get your apps from. It's a free, free thing to download. And the count itself doesn't go live. You can't start, start counting until October in the app. It's not geared for that until October. However, even if you were to download it before October or before the, before the actual bird count week. One section in the app is called find a bird and it's like a mini field guide in your hand. But in this case, you drive what you look for rather than a typical bird field guide, which will have 900 species in it. You have to flick through all the pages. You see a bird in your backyard, you don't know what it is. You just enter the details, the basic colors, main colors, the shape and the size. And the, that part of the app will actually go through a process and it will throw up uh, a list of possibilities of birds that you occur in your area that could match that description. Now, it's not 100% foolproof, but you can just scroll through those possibilities and, and it's more than likely that the bird you're seeing is in there. So it means that you don't need to know anything more than roughly say, you know, if you know what a magpie is, you can... Uh, you can then go in and say, what's well, you know, it's not a magpie shape or it is a duck shape or whatever, that sort of thing. So you don't actually need that much knowledge to get involved. Well, I think it's good to, to know because I sometimes wonder if the, the bird count comes up with all the most commonly known birds because those are the ones that people can recognise. Whereas yes. if they see a little brown jobby up in the tree, they're just going to go, I've no idea what that bird is. I'm not putting it in. So I think that's great. I think it's great to have something to help you. It, it is really hard to just get the bird book and go through and try and remember yeah. what you saw in the field. So I think that's it's really so great. overwhelming. Yeah. And I hope that one day, so maybe they already have this technology that you can actually record the bird call and have a kind <laughs> of Shazam app where it listens to the bird call and tells you, because I always hear the birds before I see them, which is yes. true of all bird watching, isn't it? It's, it's not yeah. just the eyes, it's the ears as well. So oh, absolutely. I, hope, I hope it's a bumper. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a bumper year. For the, bird, the the backyard bird cat, and I hope that it leads on. Obviously, we we find out information that can help us change our own behaviour. You know, leave a messy bit of the backyard if if, if nothing else. <laughs> you know, you don't have to tidy up the whole backyard. It's less work for you, and it's good news for the birds. And I hope that uh, with a bumper year, 
you get a whole new crop of bird watchers coming through at a young age and uh, and making bird watching a, a habit for a lifetime. That would be the most wonderful result that we could hope for. Oh, definitely. And it it really does enrich your life. I can't imagine my life without birds. And I think the the great thing, the silver, great silver lining to, to being locked down and restricted in movement in the pandemic is you've a lot of people realise you don't have to go to Kakadu or the rainforest to see amazing things. And also birds having wings, they often come to you. Um, so many people have discovered new birds in their local patch or even in their backyard that they wouldn't expect to see. And it's one of the great delights about birdwatching. Not only are they wonderful, beautiful creatures, but because they have wings, they can literally turn up anywhere. So you never know what you're going to get on any given day. No, it's great. and We love our birds and we, uh, we wish you well, Sean, and uh, we look forward to hearing the results of the next great Aussie Backyard Bird Count. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Chrissy. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email at podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time.